Welcome back to the PFC podcast. The views and opinions you are about to hear are the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of anyone else. Now on to the podcast. Welcome back to the PFC podcast. This is Dennis and today I am with Doug. How are you doing, Doug? I'm doing great, Dennis. Thanks for having me on. Outstanding. Um, Today, what I'd like to talk about is is some ventilatory management, like the basics. Uh, I think, you know, going over the things that we, the other podcasts that we have done, um, which I think have been really good, but I think we're kind of missing uh, some of the guys who are just wondering, like, what the frick are you talking about? Um, so if we could kind of start with that kind of framework, you know, uh, and start explaining some of the basic terms and how to get things started. Uh, that'd be awesome. Awesome. Um, well, thanks again. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll start off by saying that a, a lot of people can, it's easy, it's easy to confuse ventilator management with airway management because they're all kind of part of the same conti- continuum. Um, but it is important to understand that we put definitive airways in people, either by intubation or, or striking them, um, for one of two reasons. And they're very different reasons. The first is that they need an airway. Um, you know, they've got swelling, they've got trauma, um, they're not able to clear their secretions, and, and you need to put an airway in um, to, to open their airway. Um, and the, and the second reason people need um, a de- definitive airway is because they need a ventilator. And... Um, and the only way to apply a ventilator to a patient is through a definitive airway. But it's important to realize that, that there are these two reasons, and they're very different physiologies. And people who need an airway many times do not need a ventilator. They could be unconnected from the ventilator or even supplemental oxygen as long as their airway is vented open. Um, but people who need a ventilator absolutely always need an airway. Um, and... You know, people need a ventilator because they have respiratory failure, because they have a problem in their lungs um, that uh, either getting enough oxygen in, getting enough carbon dioxide out, or a combination of the two um, that they can't manage on their own or with um, what we call non-invasive respiratory support, like, you know, oxygen by nasal cannula or by face mask. and so in this case, then they need a ventilator. Um, and that's kind of what we're going to talk about today is, is what does it look like when somebody is um, in respiratory failure? And um, how, do we, um, how do we manage a ventilator uh, once we make the decision to take the airway and put them on a ventilator? Um, I will say that uh, it's an important caveat to understand that lung function is a combination of both ventilation, um, which is the exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide in the alveoli, and perfusion, which is the blood supply in pulmonary capillaries to and from the alveoli. And um, understand that ventilator management, uh, putting somebody on a ventilator can help with ventilation. It can help with gas exchange at the alveolar level, but it can't help that much with perfusion. Um, and we have seen this um, managing some of our really challenging respiratory failure in COVID, where a, at least a good part of the problem of their hypoxia 
is uh, a perfusion problem. And um, we could get into some of the mechanisms that can help improve perfusion if the ventilator isn't giving them enough oxygen at the end of the podcast, if we have time. Sure. Um, just uh, real quick, when we're talking about, you know, gas exchange and, and things like that, um, is there kind of a, a kind of a go by as far as, uh, you know, SPO2s below this, you probably need some sort of vent management or end title above this or below this. Is there, are they kind of like hard numbers, like a, you know, GCS less than eight type thing, or is it more of a, a trend? Like they are, we've done these interventions and they've not gotten better regardless of the number. Um, right. Great question. And, um, in a, I'll give you kind of two answers. Um, Obviously, it's easy when we can say that below this number, we have to do something. We're, we're going to do something. And ab we're above this number for carbon dioxide. We're going to do this number. Just like it's easy to say that, you know, GCS less than 8, we're going to intubate. Um, however, life is a lot more complicated uh, and critical illness is a lot more complicated. And, um, you know, sort of the best thing for the patient is really to react to trends. Uh, otherwise we would either intubate a lot of people that don't need it or, uh, and, or not intubate and put on ventilators, some people that needed it where their numbers are looking good, but they're getting worse and we want to get them stabilized before they become unstable. Um, so I would say, um, in general, you need ventilator management in a patient with either low oxygen, high carbon dioxide, or both, who appears to eat, who appears to be in distress, uh, or has a process that could um, worsen uh, if you don't get them stabilized early. Um, and and distress looks like you know high respiratory rate. Um, the use of accessory muscles, so retractions, um, you know, uh, using your rib muscles, belly breathing, uh, any of those is distress. Um, low oxygen, I mean, I think anytime you get below 90%, you should be, it, you should be concerned. Um, anything below the mid-80s, I think you should be very concerned. Um, it, that much said, I've seen people with oxygen saturations of 85, 86, who are stable and mentating and um, not getting worse. And sometimes I'll sit on them. You know, I think of you know maybe the elderly patient who, you know, for whom intubation, you know, really wouldn't be a very nice thing to do um, if uh, that's not really their wish. And um, you know, they've got some fluid in their lungs from heart failure, and I know it'll get better if I give them diuretic. Um, I might let them be comfortable as long as they're mentating and, and not breathing hard, you know, in the mid eighties, um, as long as it's getting better, but I'm going to be very vigilant. Usually the lower it gets, the more vigilant I'm getting and, and looking for signs of distress, high carbon dioxide, like a high end tidal CO2, you know, anything in the fifties is probably concerning, um, um, hypercapnia or elevated carbon dioxide um, will generally not make people as distressed as it will make them sleepy and, and uh, less responsive, more lethargic. 
Um, so at really high levels of CO2, end tidal CO2, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s, which we see sometimes in, in bad, you know, COPD ears and uh, et cetera, uh, they'll just be unresponsive. Uh, and you'll check a gas or an entitled CO2 and be like, oh, you know, we need to intubate them. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, like I said, the, the things to watch out for are, are they in obvious respiratory distress now? In which case, you know, you need to get get on it and get them stabilized before they go into respiratory arrest, which could lead to cardiac arrest. Um, do they have either low oxygen, high carbon dioxide that is likely to get worse? Um, those are, those are the, those are the criteria. Okay. Um, Is that clear as mud? No, that does make sense. Um, you know, I mean, and it just goes to just paying attention to your patient, um, you know, doing your assessments, kind of coming up with your diagnoses is what is the actual life threat? Right. And what is their trend? Are they trending sideways where they're essentially stable and we can, kind of hold off going more advanced or are they trending downward where you, if you don't get ahead of it, you will never get ahead of it. Um, right. Yeah. And, and, you know, just like we talked about mechanism of injury um, as far as the risk and trauma of internal injuries and bleeding and hemorrhage, you know, mechanism of injury and illness in respiratory failure is, is just as important. You know, if the mechanism of respiratory failure is, you know, let's take current events as an example, is COVID, and they're in respiratory distress, they're likely to get worse. Um, and they're likely to get really, really sick and need a lot of ventilator management. Um, so if they're stable now, um, you really need to keep a close eye on them because they have the potential to get, you know, it's kind of like that blunt force trauma to the steering wheel in a car crash. Um you know, if they're stable now and their blood pressure is stable now, you still need to keep a high, a, a really close eye on it because they're likely to bleed from their spleen and drop their blood pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, if the mechanism of their respiratory distress is, you know, I thought they were septic and I gave them, you know, every bag of normal saline that I had in my pack that, you know, say three or four liters of saline and there's maybe some volume overload. Um, and I can give them a diuretic and get rid of it. I may not have to intubate them. I might be able to get them through it just by recognizing, um, you know, that, that I gave them too much fluid for sepsis or for burn. And then if I back off, except the lower urine output, and maybe give them a little bit of a diuretic, their lungs might get better. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Um, right. Now, so going forward. Um, I think it would be helpful if we kind of went over some common terms when it comes to vent management. Sure. Um, got it. So I'm going to go over a few terms because I'll use these when we discuss um, setting the ventilator uh, and then monitoring and um, adjusting it um, for different parameters. So the first term is something called compliance, and compliance is um, uh, refers to the elasticity of the lung, like how easy it is, is it, how much pressure does it take to open it up and relax, um, and higher compliance is better. A more compliant lung expands easily, retracts easily. Lower is a sign uh, that it's going to take more pressure to open the lung up 
and um, and uh, m- more to open the lung up, which puts it at a higher risk of barotrauma if you're managing it with a ventilator. And also lower compliance is a sign that there's something generally inside the alveoli that's making them less distensible. So, you know, pus from pneumonia, protein, um, you know, from the breakdown of the alveolar lining and ARDS. Um, so low compliance is, is concerning both for disease process and because it makes it harder to, um, to expand the lung and puts it at a higher risk of lung damage. Recru- the second term I want to talk about is something called recruitment. And, and basically recruitment is at least half, if not more than half, of how we improve oxygenation with a ventilator. And what it refers to is the opening up of alveoli that are not participating in gas exchange to get into the game, right? They're collapsed um, either because of capillary forces, because there's something inside of them kind of sticking the capillary together. Again, you know, edema can do that. Blood can do that. Pus from pneumonia can do that. Protein from ARDS can do that. Um, um, Or they're collapsed due to atelectasis. Um, just because of gravity, right? The heart lying on the left lower lobe of the lung. You know, a patient who's been immobile in a litter for a prolonged period of time. Um, so generally, um, you know, um, it's easier to recruit alveoli um, that are atelectatic or that have, um, you know, a higher viscosity of of substance in them, right? So water is a very high viscosity, you know, edema. So it's fairly easy to pop open an alveoli uh, that's got, you know, pulmonary edema. It's harder to pop open an alveoli filled with pus from pneumonia because it's, you know, just think of what pus looks like. It's thicker and more tenacious. Um, So that's, um, that's recruitment. And the other thing that is important to understand about recruitment is, is that recruitment explains why positive end expiratory pressure alone, even on room air, can improve oxygenation. Because, you know, let's say you've got, you know, a half million alveoli in both lungs and 250,000 of them are stuck together for some reason. Well, if you, by applying positive end expiratory pressure, can open up 50,000 of those alveoli, then you have more oxygenation capability. Um, even if you don't provide more, um, supplemental oxygen. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. A couple more and then, uh, we're, we're done. Uh, tidal volume is easy. That's the volume of air entering and exiting the lung, uh, for breath. There's an inhale tidal volume and an exhale tidal volume. It doesn't, it's not really important. It just knows that that's basically the volume of every breath. And then a really important concept is something called minute ventilation. Um, which is uh, the volume of air um, entering and exiting the lungs per minute. And then that's a function of tidal volume, right? Every breath times the number of breaths per minute, which is the respiratory rate. So minute ventilation equals tidal volume times respiratory rate. And you'll hear that term thrown around all the time when you're talking about ventilator setting. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the last term I want to talk about is something called ventilation perfusion matching. Remember I said that ventilators can help, you know, with ventilation, getting oxygen in and carbon dioxide out of alveoli. But there's also perfusion, which is blood supply from the pulmonary capillaries, 
And you basically, in an ideal world, you have every alveoli that's open to exchange gas is supplied with blood from a pulmonary capillary. That's ventilation perfusion matching. And when you get mismatching, that's when you can have some trouble um, stabilizing your patient that not, a ventilator may not actually be able to fix. Okay? Yep, absolutely. All right. Then the next section that I had really to talk about were, you know, what are the, what are the variables on the ventilator that you can set and adjust to help, help your patient? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's probably the hardest part um, because from, you know, doing scenarios and practicing and et cetera, et cetera, like I've seen guys, they will just procrastinate and procrastinate and procrastinate and come up with, you know, any reason they can think of to not start bagging this person Mm -hmm. until it's too late. And now you really have to start working on it. Um, So I think if we could just give somebody some comfort as far as, okay, like, you know, these are your kind of your trigger points. This is when you really need to start thinking about it. This is when Mm -hmm. you really have to do it. Now, now it's become an emergency. Um, uh, if we can give somebody, you know, just some kind of framework to, to start off of. Yeah. And it's, you know, it, it is a really tough decision to make and it's really, um, I, I mean, I remember when I was a you know, brigade surgeon before I did my critical care fellowship, um, you know, I was really nervous about, you know, taking an airway and putting somebody on a ventilator. I think more really than taking the airway part. Um, once I had the airway, I think, you know, the ventilator management was easier. Maybe that's because I was medicine trained and, you know, I had worked in ICUs and in residency. But, um, you know, it's a big deal to, you know, think about do I need to, you know, sedate this person, paralyze them, you know, put in an airway, which is not an easy procedure and comes with all sorts of potential, compli- you know, complications. Um, or, or can I get by without it? Um, and I, I think just practicing running through scenarios, you know, I, I don't know if you'll ever be comfortable at it if you're not an anesthesiologist or emergency doc or an intensivist, but, you know, as much as you can think about it and get reps, you know, both, both in training and for real, um, it is good. And even table topping, I think is good to discuss it. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, so, um, how about this? I'll maybe, uh, I start off with a scenario and sure. we kind of just kind of free flow from there. Um, sure. so let's say, um, we have a trauma patient coming in. Mm-hmm. Um, they are in uh, hemorrhagic shock. Uh, okay. we have not given blood yet, but, um, we're thinking about taking their airway because of mental status and, uh, you know, we we want we don't want to lose the airway. Um, gotten uh, drugs on board, life threats as far as hemorrhage control is done, um, but we're getting ready to start doing a you know blood transfusion, blood transfusions and resuscitation, and uh, their SpO two is now it's like it was at ninety, now it's at eighty five, and it, things look like they're just downward trending. Okay. Go. All right. The first question to answer, ask and answer is, 
is the patient resuscitated? Is their mean arterial pressure or their systolic blood pressure um, adequate? And no. I would say, you know, no. So they're not resuscitated. No, we are in the so process. E even before you get to ventilator management, then when you're going to do your airway management, you have to be really, really, really careful with the drugs that you choose and the way you intubate this person. Mm -hmm. um, because ideally, we, we don't sedate a patient for um, intubation or crisis. Um, until they're until they're resuscitated, and if we have to, if we have to manage an airway, take an airway in an unresusc under resuscitated patient, then we need to have a backup plan for managing their blood pressure. And so, um, so you know, first off, your drug selection, I would not use any drug that would drop their blood pressure. So, no propofol, no Versed, no Atomidate. I know people will say Atomidate doesn't drop your blood pressure. I'm here to tell you that it often does, and mm -hmm. it always does when you don't want it to. Right. Um, and so I would only use ketamine uh, for your sedative, um, and I would paralyze, um, you know, with a bolus of probably Rocky Ronian, um, just so I make sure I get the airway first first shot. Okay. Let's that's, just pretend that. I'm sorry. Just a quick add-in. Um, yep. Let's just pretend for a second that I don't have any paralytics. Um, okay. So ketamine, 100% agree with. Um, yep. Are you good with crike with just ketamine? Yeah, 100%. I'm good with that. And I would use, remember, you go back to your sedation and analgesia CPG. I would use one or two, one to two milligrams per kilogram. So okay. e easy dose would be 100 to 200 milligrams. Okay. And higher, if you don't have a paralytic, higher would probably be better. Yep. Um, okay. Now that's the easy part. Drug, believe it or not, drug selection is the easy part. The hard part is not having your backup plan and having people that can implement it for you. So you need to prepare, even with non-sedating drugs, that the actual stimulation of, of the airway can drop their blood pressure with a vagal maneuver or the vagal response. So you need to be able to support their blood pressure acutely. And in our community, that probably means giving them a bolus of something. Mm -hmm. And I know that, um, you know, bleeding patients should get blood and all hemorrhagic shock should be resuscitated with blood. But in this case, if you don't have enough blood or you can't get it fast enough, you need to support their blood pressure with bolus of fluid. Um, and that needs to be hung in line, ready to squeeze, um, ready to squeeze. Um, as you're intubating and watching watching their vitals. Okay. Um, now, ideally, you know, in our in, in an ICU, we'll also have um, you know push dose pressor support, um, preferably phenylephrine, um, uh, and sometimes um, push dose epinephrine, which is a little harder to dose. Um, but right. you know, if you have if you have those drugs and you're familiar with them, I would have them in the room and uh, and give a little bit of that and some fluid um, just to get your patient through what really is the highest risk of all intubations. You know, intubating a patient who's in hemorrhagic shock who's under resuscitated. So there you go. I talked a lot about airway, and we're not even in the right. <laughs> our scenario. Yet. But just a quick. 
kind of follow up to that um, because I just like I just like to make it perfectly clear. There's a great big difference between a small bump from a push dose presser and a bag full of it running a drip. Um, right. You know, we're talking about, and correct me if I'm wrong, but um, I'm willing to sacrifice uh, essentially reducing perfusion because mm -hmm. of vasoconstriction with my presser to keep mm -hmm. maintain their uh, MAP, their blood pressure, et cetera, to keep their heart mm -hmm. beating until mm -hmm. I can get the, the tube in and get blood on board to then actually reverse the shock. Is that kind of the thought process? Right, exactly. And this is all really temporary, right? There's a, there's just, you know, there's a risk of a vagal response to manipulating the airway that's going to be transient, but it can be profound. And um, you, you, you need to be aware of it. And it's obviously higher risk and more profound in an under-resuscitated patient. So, if, you know, you're, if you're going into taking your airway with a mean arterial pressure of 45, you know, and then you drop that to 35, there's a decent chance you'll put that person into cardiac arrest. Mm -hmm. If you go into it with a mean arterial pressure of 65, 70, 75, um, and, you know, you drop it to 55, 50, or 45, you know, they'll, they could probably ride it out. Mm -hmm. So. Understood. Um, obviously, not the main topic of the podcast, but since, no, since, since that's our scenario, um, I, I would be remiss if I didn't, you know, lead with, um, you know, Hey, you've got a big risk here. Um, make sure you manage, you know, you manage your procedure and you have a really good backup plan. Right. Now it's the logistics of it. If you don't understand how to get it done, then you shouldn't be doing it. Yeah. And I have all my backup plans are always ready when I do a procedure. Like if I go to intubate, there's, there's an IV that's hooked up, a free-flowing IV that's hooked up to a bowl of saline bag. There's pressors in the room. There are all my drugs drawn up, you know, and labeled. Um, and obviously, I can't do all of that if I'm the operator. So I need to have people that I can, you know, instruct on how to do it. Mm -hmm. All right. So now we've got them intubated. We got them through the procedure. And it sounds like we're going to be dealing with primarily hypoxic respiratory failure, right? Yeah. Okay. So on the ventilator, there are basically four things you can control. And I'll start with this. the things that can control your, your oxygenation are the supplemental oxygen you provide, which is your FiO2, uh, which, you know, the highest is 100%. Um, and room air is 21%. Then yours are positive end expiratory pressure, or PEAT which is basically the ventil at the end of the delivered breath, at the end of expiration of the delivered breath, of the ventilator breath, the ventilator exerts some pressure through the circuit, down the tube, into the lung, um, above, uh, above um, atmospheric pressure, right? And, and, and that, the idea is that that pressure keeps the alveoli from collapsing back together closed shut um, and um, both makes them easier to oxygenate. Um, it reduces uh, shear, the risk of shear injury from opening and closing alveoli under pressure against capillary forces. Uh, and that also exerts pressure that can recruit 
remember that term, recruit alveoli that are either collapsed from atelectasis or filled with something. The other two variables then affect your removal of carbon dioxide. One of those is the respiratory rate, uh, and the other thing is um, the volume of each breath, which can either be given as a, as a volume in you know, hundreds of, of cc's of air or as a pressure, um, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 um, centimeters of water of pressure. And if you, push, if you push air in under that pressure, there'll be an associated volume of air that goes in. So, and remember that the respiratory rate and the volume equals your minute ventilation. And minute ventilation is really what controls the removal of carbon dioxide. Okay. Okay? Yep. So just so a quick thing, uh, minute yeah, ventilation, okay. is that what they're talking about when they say like six to eight, you know, cc's per kg? Is that what they're talking about? Nope. That's actually tidal volume. So okay. You set your volume uh, on that. Your minute ventilation is basically, you know, physiologic minute ventilation is, is measured in liters, not in cc's. Because if you think that you're giving a, you know, let's say you're a hundred kilogram person at ideal body weight, you're going to do six cc's of air per kilogram. That's 600 cc's of, of volume per breath. If you give 10 breaths a minute, that's 600 cc's times 10. That's 6,000 cc's or six liters. That's your minute ventilation. Okay. That's the volume per breath times the number of breaths equals the volume per minute or the minute ventilation. And so we talk about minute ventilation in, in liters. Okay. Does that make sense? It sure does. Is there a, a common like adult male has X number of liters minute ventilation? No, I mean, you know, it, it's a big, it, it's a function of lung size and fitness. Um, so no, you know, on the low end, it's probably five liters. On the high end, it's probably 10 liters you know, okay. off the top of my head. Okay. Um, and, and we don't really use it to set ventilators that much. Um, we use it troubleshooting sometimes, but again, that's a, uh, for purposes of setting up the ventilator, what we're really looking at is um, tidal volume. Okay. So, um, you know, when you're setting the ventilator, you know, the first question to answer is what is my problem, right? You know, we know that this guy has traumatic injuries. We probably know what his trauma problem is. So now we need to know what is his lung problem? Is he having you know, problems clearing CO2, does he have too much carbon dioxide? Does he have too little oxygen or does he have a, mix, a combination of both? And as, as you described the scenario, um, he, it sounds like he's not getting enough oxygen and we need to get him oxygenating better. Is that fair? Yes. Great. Um, so then, you know, we're going to set up the ventilator to optimize oxygenation with 100% FiO2. And initially, because we don't really know anything about his lungs, and his oxygenation isn't all that bad. I mean, 85% isn't, isn't optimal, but it's not terrible. It's not 65%. We can start him at a, a sort of a normal starting heap of five. And then for ventilation, for removing carbon dioxide, we'll start him at that lung protective tidal volume of 60 cc per kilogram of ideal body weight. So that's not actual body weight. If you weigh... 300 pounds and you should weigh 200 pounds. We don't do 600 cc's times 300. We do six cc's 
uh, not 600, I'm sorry, 60 feet times 300, we do 60 feet um, times 200. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in general, unless you're dealing with hyper, hypercarbia, which we're not, that their rate is something physiologic, like, you know, 12 to 14 breaths a minute. So, and just always remember with ventilation and respiratory rate that um, unless you've paralyzed your patients, which I do not advocate, um, especially without phoning a friend, that patients are going to may well breathe about, above the respiratory rate set, right? Mm-hmm. So if they're anxious, if they're in pain, if they're acidotic, um, they're going to, you know, they're going to breathe fast to blow off CO2 um, and try to balance out their acid-based problems. Right. So you set a rate, but, you know, don't be surprised if the patients breathe above it. Okay. Um, if I'm using a BVM to start off with, because mm-hmm. the save two just scares the crap out of me. Yeah. Um, is it okay that I don't bag every breath if I'm just trying to assist them ventilating? I would probably think, well, it depends how fast they're breathing. Let me right. take it back. They're okay. breathing 30 times a breath? No, breathe every other breath. Right. Uh, if they're breathing something physiologic and it's easy, then, you know, I would breathe with them easily. Um, but, um, yeah, it really depends. And it also depends on, you know, what you're getting. You know, if your end tidal CO2 is 80, uh, and they're breathing 25 times a minute, I'd probably give them a little extra volume because that volume is going to help them move out CO2. Right. As long as you can squeeze that fast without getting couple tunnel syndrome. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. Cause I'm in this patient that we're kind of describing, uh, you would, I, I would imagine he has what a, a VQ mismatch or a ventilation perfusion mismatch. So you're only going to get so far with your initial, let's say your initial blood bag um, right. and vent management. You need to continually resuscitate him until he's out of shock while right. doing vent management to actually bring him back. And that's a great point. You know, if people in shock are almost, they're almost always going to have a ventilation perfusion mismatch because they just don't have enough volume to, to perfuse all the pulmonary capillaries, mm-hmm. you know, which is why people in shock go into respiratory death. One okay. of the reasons. Um, a little bit off topic, but surrounding this. So um, I'm, you know, I'm giving somebody blood. I'm also doing vent management mm-hmm. um, and say, you know, I'm doing vent management and I'm kind of hitting a ceiling with my peep, um, mm-hmm. you know, maybe I, is it worth doing like some kind of recruiting maneuver where maybe I go up on my peep to try and get a little bit more, or do I just focus on sending the blood? Um, yeah, uh, I would, let's put aside the term recruitment maneuver for a while because that's really kind of last ditch. Sure. Um, I would, in your under-resuscitated patient, I would focus on the resuscitation and accept stable, uh, acceptably low pulse ox. Okay. Right? So, you know, we started this guy with a, with a pulse ox of 85%. We've got him on an FiO2 of 100%. We've got him on a PEEP of 5 Let's say his, his pulse ox fell to 80%. Mm-hmm. Um, it's perfectly reasonable to go up on your peep to 10. If the oxygenation improves, great. If it stays at 80, 
um, you may have a, of a, you may have a perfusion problem that just needs more resuscitation. Mm-hmm. Um, part of that is where compliance comes in as well. Right. Right. So if the lungs are, if the lungs are relaxed and, and low pressure, you know, your, your peak pressures are low and your plateau pressures are low, which I'll get into. Um, and you give them 10 a peep and they're still hypoxic then it's probably a resuscitation problem. If you're, if your um, compliance is low and your peak pressure is high and your plateau pressure is high because you're straining to get breath into these non-compliant alveoli, then maybe maybe you know increasing your vent management could help. Okay. So it's, you know it's, a, it's at least a three-dimensional problem. Oh yeah. Yep. Nothing so, in life is free. So. Right. Um. But I would feel okay, you know, with, with, you know, people who aren't experienced going up on peak to, you know, 10 or even 15, um, as long as, you know, their pressures are okay and we can get into that, you know, I've got a few notes on troubleshooting and monitoring. Um, uh, if they start running into high pressures on the ventilator, then, then you have to back off. Mm-hmm. You, can't, you can't go anymore. You can't, you can't, you can't apply any more pressure. Um, through the ventilator, if you're, um, the pressure readings that you're getting on a ventilator, your, your, your pulmonary pressures are high, um, you know, cause you risk, um, damaging the lungs, uh, with barotrauma, at least until you phone a friend and, and have a discussion. So monitoring wise, obviously you're going to monitor oxygenation probably with a pulse ox, um, or a PAO2 if you can get an ABG and you're going to monitor ventilation or, or removal of carbon dioxide with an entitled CO2 or your PCO2 on an ABG. And then the other thing you're going to monitor is you're going to, you're going to monitor your ventilator, right? And the things that you're mostly going to look at on your ventilator are your peak pressures um, or peak inspiratory pressure. Sometimes it's called peak pressure. Sometimes it's called PIP, peak inspiratory pressure. Um, And then um, all ventilators have a way to measure something called the plateau pressure. Um, or in a plateau, the peak pressure is what it, the pressure it takes to initially get that breath of air in, and it um, and that includes resistance through the circuit, right? The um, the ventilator circuit, the endotracheal tube, the tubing, etc. Um, because you have to overcome that to get the breath in. The plateau pressure is the pressure that it takes to hold the alveoli open, and is is supposed to be independent of the circuit. It isn't 100%, but it's more independent of the circuit. So the plateau pressure is a better, not perfect, but better measurement of compliance, of, how, of, of the pressure it takes to open the lungs. And we want to keep our peak pressures under 35 at centimeters of water and our plateau pressures under, thir- I'm sorry, um, millimeters of mercury. Um, no, centimeters, centimeters of water. Of water. I wrote, yeah, I wrote this, uh, I wrote the units down wrong in my cheat sheet here. 35 centimeters of water for peak, 30 centimeters of water for plateau. Okay. Okay. Um, and if they're lower than that, if, as you're ventilating them, then they have probably have good compliance. They have high compliance and, and fairly elastic lungs. If they're high, um, then one of two things happens. 
um, either their lungs are stiff and non-compliant and low compliance, or if the peak pressure is high, especially and the plateau is not as high, you may have um, a problem in the circuit, right? And so things that, because remember, peak pressure is a better measurement of, of pressures in the circuit as well as the lungs. And so at that point, you want to troubleshoot the circuit, right? Mm-hmm. So um, suction the patient, right? Do you have um, something obstructing the, the tube or the airways immediately below the tube? Check your tubing for kinks. If they have an endotracheal tube, are they biting the endotracheal tube? We just had a patient recently who bit her endotracheal tube in half, um, fortunately, as we were extubating her. So um, uh, that's a great reason that peak pressures are high. Um, right. You know, if they're biting their tube, you can put in a bite block and you can give them some more sedation, especially if it has to stay in. Um, you can check for bronchospasm. So listen with your stethoscope. Do they sound really wheezy? Not everybody's going to carry albuterol, but if, if you do and they sound really wheezy and their pressures are high, you can give them some albuterol. Uh, and then as a last resort, um, if their peak pressures are high and you can't find anything, um, disconnect the vent from the tube, from the crike or the endotracheal tube, and see if the pressure is normalized. If the mm-hmm. pressure comes down, you hear a rush of air and the pressures come down, um, then... Uh, you may be breath stacking, um, which is, you know, a patient that's really basically breathing so fast that the lungs don't empty out um, the complete volume before the next volume is given. And those incremental additions of unexhaled volume add up to cause pressure. So that's really the big, the big troubleshooting that you'll do. Um, when you check a plateau pressure, or if that's high, um, then there's probably something in the alveoli and you just need to back off on your, on your setting. Right. Um, is that, um, I've been reading about drive pressure where you take mm-hmm. uh, plateau pressure minus your, uh, peep. Mm-hmm. And was it, uh, trying to get that number to what, 17 or 15 uh, yeah. or less? Yeah. Okay. Which one is it by the way? <laughs> Uh, I don't know off the top of my head either. Okay. Probably fine. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, um, you know, it's a, it's a, a little bit more modern method of, of, um, adjusting your pressures. Um, I, you know, I tend to look at at the plateau pressure. If it's under 30, I'm good. I've got room to go up on things that affect my pressure, which Mm -hmm. is basically everything, right? Right. The people affect your pressure. The volume will affect your your pressure in the circuit in the lung. Uh, the rate can, um, or if you're on a pressure control, that will as well. So you have to decide which variable you need to manage. Um, you know, if they're if they're peep, <clears throat> sorry, their um, plateau pressure is less than thirty and they're still not oxygenating well enough, then I know I have room to go up on my peak. Mm-hmm. If it's less than thirty and they're not ventilating enough then I know I have room to go up on my tidal volume or my, my um, pressure with the every breath. And if it's not, then I have to go down on something. Mm-hmm. Ideally something, you know, if I have to go down on something, I'm going to go down on something that doesn't affect the variable that I'm trying to treat, right? So if they're hypoxic and their plateau pressure is high, I want to keep the PEEP for the oxygenation so I'll probably decrease my tidal volume. Right. If I'm not having trouble with clearing CO2 and I may accept 
you know, an end-paddle CO2 in the 50s just so I can oxygenate the patient at a decent pressure. Right. So you can see how, like I said, it, it definitely gets to be a three-dimensional problem. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, let's see. Uh, was there anything else that, I mean, there's a lot that we have not covered, but um, at least for this kind of uh, basics round, um, is there anything that guys really need to know? No, really. Um, I actually, I'm surprised I got to the end of my cheat sheet uh, or my, my uh, outline and, uh, and we're there right now. So right. Um, I think we covered all the, you know, all the basics. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And we managed to get airway in there as well. And resuscitation. And we got airway in there and we're under an hour and dinner will be served in three minutes. Okay. Well, I don't want to keep you from dinner. Um, hey, Doug. Hey, thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome, Dad. This has been fun, and thanks for your good news about uh, about the master's program. Yeah, I, I'm pretty excited about it. Yes, be sure to go to our website, www.prolongfieldcare.org. Find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram. Subscribe and stay on the bleeding edge of combat medicine. This is Dennis for the PFC Podcast. Our boy is waiting there for you.